If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. And we are going to read uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through, th- through 49. You can also find the text printed out in uh, your bulletin. And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and He has appeared to Simon. When they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of bread, as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. And thought they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this text because it is very important. These were Jesus' final words to His disciples, to you and I before uh, He left. Lord, they are very important to Your church because they teach us important things, who we are to be and what we are to become. And so I would ask, Lord, that You would speak through me today. Help these folks to hear from Your Word. And may we all grow in Your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each Friday after work, Bubba was his name, would fire up his outdoor grill and cook a venison steak. But all of Bubba's neighbors happened to be Catholic. And since it was Lent, they were forbidden to eat any meat, as you know, until Friday. Unfortunately, though, they had to smell that delicious aroma from Bubba. And the stakes were causing quite a problem among the Catholic parish. In fact, they finally decided they needed to go and talk to their priest. Well, the priest came and he visited with Bubba and suggested that he become a Catholic to solve the problem. (laughs) Well, after several classes and much study, Bubba attended the Mass. And as priest sprinkled holy water over him, he said, You were born a Baptist, raised a Baptist... But now, you are a Catholic. Well, Bubba's neighbors were greatly relieved. They thought the problem had been solved until 
Friday night once again arrived. And suddenly there was a wonderful aroma of grilled venison filling the neighborhood once again. Well, they wasted no time and they called the priest and said, you got to get over here right now and deal with Bubba. Well, he rushed into Bubba's backyard clutching his rosary and preparing to scold him, but he stopped and watched with amazement as he saw Bubba standing clutching a small bottle of water and he carefully sprinkled over the grilled meat and chanted these words, You was born a deer, you was raised a deer, but now you's a catfish. <laughs> well, all kid- kidding aside, uh, this uh, little story shows us how we use labels to describe things, don't we? And however, as this story showed, you can label some things, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are what you label them to be. You see, that catfish wasn't deer, was it? I'm sorry, that deer wasn't catfish. <laughs> I said that backwards. Well, we, have, we, we need to look at this today, that there are some things that we are to be what we are to be. And that's what our text gets at today that we live out these very things that God calls His church to do. You see, in our text, Jesus had just risen from the dead. It was uh, Easter evening. And the twelve were huddled, hearing the news uh, of the two men from the road, road of Emmaus. And they were sort of wondering, what all is going on? And so now they get to hear God's call, God's direction. And these brief words that we have recorded here, we find out what the church is to be doing and who they must be in order to do so. So as I said, the twelve are in this room. And some estimate there may have been others. Some of them, probably the women who had been at the tomb early that morning. Some of the closest followers of Christ. The two men walk in who had just met with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and they tell of the great news that Jesus had been seen. In fact, He had walked with them. And they also hear the news that He had appeared to Peter. And it's almost like it couldn't happen any quicker than this, that Jesus now stands in their midst. He stands in their midst and He says three words, or sorry, four words to them. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, this couldn't have been a more gracious statement from our Lord to these 12 men. I mean, consider, this was their life. Jesus, He had just died on the cross. Their whole world had been rocked on Friday as they heard of His death because none of them really saw it outside of maybe John. They had all left the area. All their hopes and dreams had been dashed. And now there's sort of this... Weird knowledge that Jesus has risen. He's no longer in the grave. And so they're feeling guilt. They're feeling confusion. Their emotions have been up and down, pits and peaks. And the Lord stands in this room and says, Peace be with you. You know, it probably wasn't until later when they reflected on these words that they really got the significance of them. In fact, it should say something to all of us about our Lord's compassion. 
that He wants us, He wants you and I, to have peace. You know, I don't know about you, but in this day and age, I wonder what the going price would be for peace. In fact, it's probably one of the rarest commodities to find. People are searching desperately both inside and outside the walls of the church to find peace. We have fears about our jobs, our marriages, our retirement, our children. And as Christians, we sort of cognitively know that our God is ultimately in control. But I think what you and I would both agree, it's one thing to say we know it, and it's another thing to say we really know it. Where our lives conform to that reality, to that knowledge. Before our Lord, He doesn't just want us to struggle with it. He wants us to know peace. In his book, Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest, Ed Welch informs his reader that the most often used command in Scripture is do not fear. The most often used command is do not fear. You see, you and I were not designed for this broken world, were we? Where there's sin and sinners where there's a devil at work in the affairs of man. We weren't designed for that. In fact, we were designed for a garden. And so it's a fearful, scary place. There's no promise given to us tomorrow. Each day is a new horizon, and we face challenges of just dealing with life. But God wants you and I to have this thing called peace. In John chapter 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Paul writes in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And then later in that same letter he writes, May the God of peace be with you all. And then lastly, in 2 Thessalonians, he writes, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I could go on. There's many more references about peace in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament. But the clear fact is, God does not want you and I, we who are His children, to be afraid, to be fearful, to give in to stress or worry. He wants to give us Peace. Now that doesn't mean we don't have concerns, does it? God realizes we have concerns, but He doesn't want us to cling to them. That's why Scripture tells us to cast all our anxieties upon Him, because He cares for us. And if you're a fisherman, you understand the term quite clearly. Cast means to put out there. It doesn't say reel back in. And that is the great challenge for all of us, to trust in His benevolent care. Just recently, Amber and I were dealing with some stressful things as we considered taking on these two boys and the challenges that came within. We read Psalm 25 a couple nights ago, and here's what it said. The ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. That is the trust the Lord wants us to have as we go through the trials of life to believe that He is the good and gracious God. That He doesn't stand aloof. He's not absent in a way. He does not have the do not disturb sign on His house or His office. 
the door is open. And He wants us to believe that He wants us to come in. You know, in the military, whenever you come to an open door, if you're a lesser rank, you do not walk right in. If you do, you have a problem very quickly. It is courtesy and respect. Even though the door is wide open and most bosses say, please come in, you always stand at the door outside. I'm sure that's the case in some of your office spaces. You deal with a superior or something like that. But that's not the case with our Lord. He invites us to come in because He wants to calm our fears. He wants to alleviate them. And that is the blessed peace that He wanted to give to these twelves. He extends them peace. Because if they are going to be the people that are going to announce to the world, Jesus has risen, they must have peace in their heart. They must have trust in their God that He is there with them. Well, to assist in their weakness and their questions about His resurrection, Jesus allows them to sort of experience a couple different things, doesn't He? He first allows them to sort of touch and see that He did indeed have a resurrected body, that He was in a spirit. And if there were any questions, if it was really Him and not someone else, He shows them His actual wounds in His hands and in His feet, wounds that had been healed. And then to conclude the matter... He eats fish in their presence. All three confirming facts just to show this isn't a fraud. This is real. This is a resurrected body. And though the walls couldn't confine Him, this was a real body. This was the man God. This was Jesus Himself. Now, ever since Jesus' day, there have been questions about the reality of the resurrection. Perhaps you have had those questions. Questions of skepticism, questions of doubt. Could it really be that someone rose from the dead? Those questions have been throughout the history of man ever since Jesus' death and resurrection. And most people believe the burden of proof is on us as believers to say, here's how it's true. But brothers and sisters... Uh, That is not completely the case, as Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God in the Age of Skepticism. He says these words, The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It's not enough simply to believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. In other words, what Keller is saying is, how in the world did all these people radically transform and live different lives? You've got to have an explanation of that. You just can't say, well, that's uh, not true. That's fake. That's false. Well, how did so many people radically be transformed and give their lives for the expansion of the gospel? So many people died, as we well know, as martyrs willing to go to death because of what they believed in. You have to give an explanation of how did this come about. You just can't explain it away. Well, many argue then that the reason why we do not believe is it's scientifically impossible to prove the resurrection. Well, in many ways that's true. A scientific experiment, for those of you all who are gifted in this, is that you try to reshow again something that has already actually happened in reality. And to this point in day and time, there have been no one outside of Jesus Christ to claim they have risen from the dead. 
to show themselves as the true man-God. No one has been able to duplicate it. However, just because we cannot reproduce it does not mean or does not disprove there's no cause for it. That's what the scientific community says. It says, if we can't reproduce it, if we can't show it, then obviously it must not happen. Well, that's very easy to say when you only look under a certain area. But if you open that area broader and say, can there be a God outside of this area of natural world that we know and see certain laws established that can move into this? Well, those are the things that we argue that it takes just as much faith to believe this as it does to believe that there's a God that does work and does do miracles in the history of mankind. It does take faith for both of them. And the facts of Christianity are quite simple. You see, the great thing about our faith is it's not just up to one or two testimonies, is it? In fact, the biblical writers did a great deal of work saying, you know what? Many people believed, or many people saw the risen Lord. In fact, Paul writes us in the book of 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared not only to Peter and the twelve, but over to 500 different people at one time. That just can't be a vision. 500 different people cannot have the same testimony and just see a vision. They can't all be duped. And Paul is almost writing to the first century writers who, just like us, would have had all the doubts and concerns in the world. How can someone rise from the grave? He's saying, well, if you don't believe me, go ask one of these 500 people. Go ahead. He's putting the onus out there to believe in the miraculous to believe that there is a Christ. You see, Christianity does not shy from these facts. It doesn't hold back. Paul's earliest letters were maybe 20 years after the resurrection. The witnesses were certainly around, and if they weren't, if this was false, if this was hokey-pokey, if this was inquirer stuff, someone could have thrown the flag and said, this isn't true, here's the body, or I didn't see him, or it's not really what Paul is saying it to be true. But even during that day and age, they showed, they displayed that Jesus had rose from the dead. Last week we saw too in Scriptures how it's very clear that all the requirements of God's law was fulfilled, didn't we? Two male witnesses were present right at the initial empty tomb. That was to confirm the fact. And then I think another point that is very affirming is the testimony of the women. During those day and ages, women were not given the same credibility as witnesses as men were, and sadly so. In fact, they were deemed uncredible. But consider this. Christianity said at that time the very first witnesses was Mary. Mary Magdalene, a woman whose seven demons had been driven out of. Think about the pressure that they must have faced from a very unbelieving world to, to show credibility. If you're going to show credibility, you don't choose the worst possible witness and say they were the first one to see him, unless it really happened. That is Christianity's great evidence to us. Keller argues, if you're going to fabricate a story, you would not begin with the first witnesses being questionable. You would begin with someone being absolutely beyond a shadow of doubt true. But I think this builds 
uh, credibility to the case of the resurrection. You see, the testimony of Scripture of the resurrection is on two simple facts. And they are this, that the tomb was empty and that the resurrected body of Jesus Christ was seen, was touched, was felt, was real. Those are the two facts in which the resurrection hangs. The tomb must be empty and the body not somewhere else and Jesus must be seen. You cannot have one without the other. They both must be present. Because if there is no resurrection, as C.S. Lewis greatly argued, then Jesus would have to be a lunatic. You could say maybe he was a great teacher, but you know what? As a teacher, he claimed to be God. And if he just died like mortal man, then he's a lunatic. He's a liar. He's deceiving masses. And there's no reason to believe him. But if he did rise from the grave, then he is who he said he is. He is the Lord, as Lewis argues. Well, this leads us to the second proof of evidence that the resurrection is true. And that is this, that Jesus in our text points that all scriptures direct us to Him. Did you catch that? He says in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. When I was younger in my faith, growing in my knowledge of the Word of God, I started uh, studying Scripture. And one of the great things I learned very clearly is that every biblical writer had a goal. And I'm probably telling many of you all the same things you know. They have a goal, they have an audience, and they have a purpose. And I got that. I also understood that there were parts in the Old Testament that sort of pointed to Jesus. But I don't think this is that is completely getting at what Jesus is meaning here. Jesus says in the most complete statement that every part of Scripture, there is a red thread that is running through, a scarlet thread that points us to Jesus Christ. Every story, everywhere is leading us to Jesus. Because scriptures fulfill us, or scripture fulfills his minute, or he, saying this backwards. Scripture points to Jesus, and it shows us that he is who he said to be, and that is the big picture. You know, so often in life, when I would read the Bible a number of years ago, I would just read a certain section and get the moral story out of it and understand it. But rarely would I take it a step further and say, "How is this story?" teaching me something more about Jesus Christ. That is what the Old Testament does. And brothers and sisters, we cannot just be people be people of the New Testament. We must be people of both the Old and the New Testament. Because if we do not understand the Old Testament, we do not completely understand Jesus Christ. You must understand the Old to understand the full picture of Jesus. It is in that knowledge that we see Him for what He is truly is. And notice too what He said. Everything must be fulfilled. Not some, not part, not half, but everything must be fulfilled. It must show us that it is pointing to Him. You know, when we understand this grand principle, we start to see, for example, how... Jesus was the true Jonah. 
I could have chosen many different places in the Old Testament, but let me show you how Jesus was the true Jonah. You see, Jonah's story is about a man who was called by God to go to the very worst people in the world that he hated the most and go tell them, repent to change your life. And we know the story. Jonah didn't want to go. He had to be uh, uh, motivated by his potential death in a fish. And even when he goes, he's not quite happy with the end results. But Jesus is the exact opposite of that. You see, Jesus is the true Jonah. He left the glories of heaven. And He went to the most vile, you and I. And He went willingly. And not only did He just tell, warn people, He performed works of grace and works of mercy, performing healing. And in fact, He was willing to die for these people so that they might know the loving kindness of the Lord. That sure wasn't the Jonah of the Old Testament. The Jonah of the Old Testament got mad when God didn't bring down fire on his enemies and give them what they deserved. No, Jesus says that no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah, right? That is how the Old Testament is fulfilled in pointing us to Christ. It teaches us about Jesus. He is the true Jonah. We will not completely understand or appreciate Jesus, as I said earlier, until we see that the Old Testament leads us to Christ. It helps us to understand Him completely and who He is. But notice lastly, there's something that must happen with this thing of the Word of God. Jesus has the Spirit of God to open up their mind. When I was in seminary, or I'm sorry, when I was in college, I, I got a degree in religious studies. And I had a professor, and this guy knew the Bible inside and out. But sadly, he was an unbeliever. He did all that he could to make fun of you if you're a Christian, to point out errors in your way. He would attack us in class incessantly. And yet, he was one of the key translators of the NIV Bible. Brothers and sisters, you and I can know this thing word for word, in and out. But until that Spirit of God opens up our minds, we are dead and as callous as the next person who has never heard the Word of God. That is what Jesus is pointing us to, how important His work in our life is. We must be born again. We must be regenerated in order to hear Him. And so what happens then as a result of seeing this resurrected body touching this resurrected body, realizing that everything in this Old Testament points now to Jesus Christ, well, Jesus commissions them to their new role. And it's very simple, to be a witness. What is a witness? A witness is someone who simply testifies to the truth of the reality they know. Did you catch that? It's simply to testify to the truth of the reality they know. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our commission. We are to be witnesses, both in our life and in our words. We are to explain to people who Jesus is. We are to explain as a child of God that we believe in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that Scripture is the Word of God and that we want to direct people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our goal. And it's a goal that we just don't have to do on our own, do we? 
What is so amazing and so cool is God gives us the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, to empower us to do this. And I am so thankful He does. We each struggle with fear, don't we? And I tell you, one of the greatest fears I struggle with in my life is often communicating the gospel. Though I believe in it, though I desire it, for some reason the fear of man pierces an arrow in my heart. And for some reason I don't want to look foolish. We wrestle with that, don't we? But that is where the Holy Spirit moves in. And He gives us strength that we don't have of ourselves to communicate the gospel, to love someone to Jesus. And that is the beauty of it all. When we hear this gospel, though, what is so amazing is we cannot just live life the same. If we are transformed by the gospel, we must live for a new purpose, a new way. Tim Keller concluded his chapter on the resurrection in a reason for God saying this, Each year at Easter, I get to preach on the resurrection. In my sermon, I always say to my skeptical, secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about the poor, alleviating hunger and disease and caring for the environment. Yet at the same time, they hold in the same hand the belief that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make any difference? If the resurrection of Jesus happened, then that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. If the resurrection is true, we cannot live our lives however we may choose. We must live for someone else's glory. And that is the purpose That is the great significance of Jesus' resurrection. No matter what phase we are at or what season we are at, if we are called Christian, we are called to live for that goal. We are called to announce God's glory and to live for His glory. That's what our catechism says. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose of and the result of the resurrection. You see, when you and I understand the resurrection, it changes us. This past Easter Sunday, I, was, <clears throat> I had to do the, or help out with the sunrise service. And sadly to say, the people who usually come out to the sunrise service are the retired folks, the veterans. And one of them is a guy named Frank. Frank's a retired tech sergeant. And Frank came up to me, And he shook my hand. He said, He is risen. He is risen. And what I appreciate about Frank, though he is a very simple man, he loves Jesus. He's had two wives both die on him in his life. He walks around with a limp, but every day he is faithful as clockwork to come to prayer and pray for the soldiers and the needs in our community. That's a life transformed by the resurrection. That's a life transformed that says, He is risen. And when Easter sunrise comes around, who's up early in the morning? Frank. And that's what God calls each of us to do, doesn't He? No matter where we're at, 
no matter what's going on in our life, no longer if we're in, if we're in cubicles or we're in the classrooms at the University of Arizona or we're watching kids with other moms having playgroup dates or we serve in the military. We're called to live for this risen Lord. And so when we know these things, as I said in the beginning, that He did really rise from the grave. And these Scriptures, they really do give great testimony to who He is. And we cannot help but be witnesses about Him. May that be true in each of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these true words. And oh Lord, uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in this room. We have often failed these words. We have doubted. We've wrestled. We have shrunk in fear. We have not given a good testimony as we would like. Thank You, Lord, that You are the God of second chances. Thank You, Jesus, that You paid for those sins on the cross as much as the other ones. And I would invite You, O Spirit of the living God, that You would stir us up afresh, even right now, that You would put people on our hearts and our minds that You are calling us to witness to, that You are calling us to announce the good news of Your Gospel to. Lord, uh, we we need Your help. Empower us, Holy Spirit. Help us to believe the promises that You have called us to announce this good news. And let us not grow weary, but help us to persevere. Help us to be like Frank. He is risen. He is risen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.